I've just written here as my last line. Louis loves it when men spank him, doesn't he? Yeah, this definitely awoke something in Louis, this series. Um, what do we say to start these things? I've forgotten. Oh, hello. Uh, welcome to All The Way Through. This is Series 2, Episode 6 of the podcast journeying through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out if we love him as much as we thought we did. As always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello, and I am joining you. You are Matthew Dunn-Miles. That's always helpful to know, isn't it? So, Alex, I can tell by your spandex outfit that this could potentially be swingers, but there is something different about your mask. I think from my outfit, you might assume that I'm going rollerblading after this, but I am in fact, getting ready to push my body to the extreme limits. What are you wearing? I am in a tight spandex outfit with braces on my knees from doing too many squats that have left me severely demobilized. Excellent. Got any barbed wire? Yeah, that's just always standard. I always carry that around with me, the uh, chair covered in barbed wire. But why do we have these things, Alex? It's because we are going into the world of professional wrestling. Profesh wrestling. I assume most people understand what the concept of pro wrestling is, but for anyone who's not completely familiar, it is not a sport. They describe themselves as sports entertainment. Men will wrestle each other in a ring until one of them pins the other one, but shh, the result is predetermined. But are we supposed to know that or are we not supposed to know that? Well, that's part of the journey, isn't it? Really is. I feel incredibly unqualified to discuss this topic I don't think I've ever watched a wrestling match, ever. Never, ever? Not even in the background on TV or anything? I've seen clips, obviously. I think the closest I've got is probably watching Hogan Knows Best, which is Hulk Hogan's reality TV show. Not the first time that's come up in the making of this podcast, which is quite worrying. It was ahead of its time. It was the keeping up with the Kardashians of its day. Exactly. But I do feel slightly under pressure because I know that we have at least one regular listener who is a professional wrestler. That's right, we do. Hello to our professional wrestling listenership. I can say that I am not a wrestling nerd, but I I am someone who has dipped in and out of wrestling throughout my life. When I was a child, it was one of those things that was on TV on Channel 5, I think. Then nothing for years. And then in my early 20s, during having too much time on my hands as a student, got quite back into it. And so since then, I kind of dip in and out, but I am not a aficionado by any sorts. And I have never wrestled, as you can tell by my skinny physique. You shock me. That's shocking. I wish I could reveal that I was actually a heavyweight champion at some point. but I did watch Gladiators. Does that count? Um, <laughs> similar physiques, similar use of foam hands in the crowd. Spandex outfits. But importantly, Gladiators was never fixed, the results. Unless you have some sort of big reveal that actually Gladiators was fixed. Well, actually, we've got Jet from Gladiators. No, we don't. <laughs> Our special guest is Wolf. Every man of a certain age gets very excited to hear that Jet might guest on our podcast. But obviously, Gladiators is British, and the home of professional wrestling is in the United States. So that's where we begin with Louis in his mom van driving across the US. Actually, we don't begin in that. We begin in the airport, don't we? We begin in the airport with Louis being flipped the bird. By two guys who are just so late 90s, early thousands in their look. 
that it sort of gave me goosebumps. It was a full time travel. They're wearing tiny sunglasses. One of them's got a Mohican, quite questionable facial hair. And they are instantly hostile to Louis. He extends a very friendly British hand, but they seem a little bit on edge about who he is and why he's filming them. And then one of them asks him, don't you know who I am? Louis says, no. And then he says, you film a documentary on wrestling, you have no idea who I am. We've only just started, to be honest. But I mean, didn't you do a little research before you started this endeavor? Which is a very eloquent question from a wrestler. That was too close to the bone for me, actually. I mean, obviously, I do extensive research for every episode of the podcast. Let's say this one is method, because much like Louis, you've done very little research before starting this endeavour. I would agree. I would agree. It never is clarified who this wrestler is. I think one of them is possibly a guy called Raven. They are known, but it's not like seeing Hulk Hogan and not knowing who Hulk Hogan is. I would have known that. If he was sat there with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, it would be a different story. Yeah, see, this is the problem. I think I could name about three wrestlers and you've named two of them. Yeah, but this is it because it's a subculture and one that was very underground for a while, but now is very mainstream. I think a lot of people know at least one or two wrestlers and you see wrestlers in Hollywood movies. The Rock is the highest paid movie star in the world and he came from this world at the very similar area to when Louis is there. And the main company, WWE, is now listed on the stock exchange. So we've moved on from where we are at this point to something huge, but this is really kind of caption it when it was very much in the ascendancy and rising to that kind of status. Yeah, it feels quite rough and ready, I think. Louis traveling through the American South, he says, to learn more about the most popular sport in America, but it's not really a sport. And his first stop is what he describes as the Megabucks high end of wrestling, world championship wrestling in Gainesville, Florida. So he goes backstage and is greeted by a guy called Alan Sharp, who is kind of showing him around. Big, big nerd. Big, just nerd vibes from Alan. (laughs) Big nerd vibes. Not the classic wrestler look. That's because that man is a director of public relations. (laughs) Very much not a professional wrestler. You never know, he could body slam you in a pinch. He could body slam me easily. I'm very body slammable. Louis gets a tour with Alan Sharp around the facilities. Louis sees the full wrestling arena, how it's set up with the ring and what's known as the Titan Tron, which is the big entrance at the front. And he has less of a reaction to that than he does at seeing a full working call centre in an earlier episode from this series. There is a kind of muted, oh, wow. I guess I, I feel the same. He's very unprepared for the world of wrestling. He just doesn't really know what to make of it. Alan tries to sell it to him by telling Louis it's not just wrestling, it's rock and roll with muscles. It's Melrose Place in spandex. Yeah. I had to Google what Melrose Place was. Me too. And it was a soap opera about the lives of young adults living in an apartment complex called Melrose Place in Hollywood, California. Unfortunately, it was cancelled in May 1999, so not long after this episode. So it was already getting to be a dated reference by the time Alan made it. Basically, he's stressing that there's drama in wrestling and that's what makes it different. So Louis says, well, this is great. I want to learn more. Can we go backstage? I want to meet some wrestlers. And (laughs) Louis does meet some wrestlers. It's a fun time. The first guy that he tries to speak to is absolutely enormous. Louis Theroux is about six foot four and... Every man in this part of the episode makes him look absolutely tiny. Yeah. 
This is Macho Man Randy Savage and Louis kind of tries to introduce himself to him in a kind of sideways fashion. He doesn't fully approach him. He kind of approaches him from the side and then says, Macho Man, and then he doesn't really respond to him and doesn't want to give him the interview. But it's okay because he's saved by Rowdy Roddy Piper who tries to call Louis Louis LaRue, which maybe is where the pop star LaRue got the idea for her name. Good theory. And I've written, I get real weekend dad vibes from Rowdy Roddy Piper. It feels like he's pretty much on the verge of a breakdown from the beginning of this interview. See, Alex, you should love Rowdy Roddy Piper because he is a proud, proud Scotsman. He wears a kilt. He plays the bagpipes. He was born in Canada, but we'll skip past that. His entrance music was bagpipe music for a long part of his career. He looks like Danny Zuko's dad. And going with the breakdown theme, Louis says, do you know what you're doing tonight? Who are you fighting tonight? And Roddy says, I'm going to fight some giant with hair coming out of his nose and green teeth tonight. I'm 232 pounds and he's going to be 7 foot 2, 400 pounds. How am I doing? I'm doing this. Terrible. This is something we've noticed in other Weird Weekends episodes. If there is a camera on a wrestler, they feel like they are performing slightly so all the conversations especially with the people at this level is either really subdued and quite stunted or it's super kind of high energy and a little bit like they are what we later see which is doing a promotional video for wrestling itself Louis remarks that Rowdy Roddy Piper doesn't look like your typical wrestler he's not a very sort of big buff guy he says you are muscly but you're not that big. And Roddy replies that he's killed men for less than that. Louis essentially accuses him of having a dad bod. He says he's just turned 45, so he potentially is a dad, and they still can't beat him. Then maybe my favourite line of the entire episode comes out this early, where he says that he would have made love to Louis at 29. Yeah, an interesting take from Roddy Piper. I think he gets a little bit too giddy with the camera on him. Louis asks him about his injuries and what kind of injuries he's sporting. And Roddy goes through a huge checklist of injuries to his arms, to his shoulders, to his legs, to his hip. And then talks about an injury to his wrist, which he doesn't want to get fixed because it would stop him playing bagpipes. And he came fifth in the world playing bagpipes. I have not checked this claim, but I don't know whether that's true. Roddy's standing there holding a big suitcase and Louis says, what's in your suitcase? Is it your bagpipes? To which he replies, it's all my sexual detachments. That's what's in there. But actually when he opens it up, it's his costume, which is, as you said, a sort of typical traditional Scottish kilt sporran setup. It's bagpipes. And then like a hairbrush and a massive protein bar. That's all the essentials that you need. So this is interesting because I feel like there is an element here which is not discussed in the documentary, which is maybe hinted at while he's looking at his suitcase. What were you likely to find in a wrestler's suitcase in the 90s? And the answer is possibly steroids. Performance enhancing drugs to help them gain physical muscle, a huge issue in 90s wrestling. And Roddy Piper has been someone who has taught in his own biographies and stuff about his own relationships with steroid abuse. So I don't know whether this was Louis kind of trying to hint at this subject maybe but once Roddy gives him the itinerary of what's in his suitcase he kind of quickly packs up and then he is gone. Roddy very quickly says he has to take a pee and leaves. Oh well that is the excuse okay well maybe his bladder was just cooling and it wasn't the fact he had to show his contents of his suitcase. I think Louis is a bit thrown off by how quickly it just ends but he kind of looks around for his next interviewee and his next interviewee is a man who looks like he stepped straight out of the matrix with a purple Mohican, those tiny tiny sunglasses again and a long black coat. He's got a German accent which I assume is real. Yes I think it is. And he says he's just starting tonight with the wrestling which Louis is a bit confused about. He says is this your first fight? What's going on? And the 
wrestler explains that it's a new character. He used to be a character called Alex Wright and he would dance techno, which I would, I mean, I need to see videos of this. Assume that exists somewhere on the internet. But he says that character didn't work because American people aren't very familiar with techno. Clearly he hadn't took hold in 1999. And so his new persona, he describes as a bad, mean guy. Techno guys are good guys. Non-techno guys are bad, mean guys. That is very much how it works. Obviously, you'd have a brand new exciting name for your new wrestling persona. He's gone with Alexander Wright. A slight twist, but it says evil to me, so... Careful, it's nearly my name. Louis says, I love your costume, I love your outfit. And Alexander Wright says, oh no, this is just my normal clothes. In the ring, I'll be wearing something completely different. Bear in mind, he's wearing a very long black jacket at the moment. He says, I'll have a long leather jacket with no sleeves, high boots, the glasses, obviously. So still wearing the tiny sunglasses and a stick. It's a look. Can I switch my outfit to that? Uh, Only if you change your persona to Alexandra. Okay. I'll be a bad mean girl. I was intrigued by what happened with Alex Wright and his change of character. He does come back onto TV and he's known not as Alexander Wright. Eventually, they choose the name Berlin, spelled B-E-R-L-Y-N. But here's the spanner in the works for the WCW at the time. They had to delay his character launch because the outfits were incredibly similar to those of the Columbine School Massacre shooters. So it's fair to say that maybe this new change of character didn't work out well. Poor Alex. He was going for the Matrix. Come on, give the guy a break. I know, but world events will get ahead of you. The end of the conversation is very abrupt. He just kind of gets blanked and walked away from. So tall, skinny Louis looking like a toddler at like big school, wandering around the halls of the WCW arena. He approaches a wrestler called Goldberg. I think I've heard of Goldberg. You would have likely heard of Goldberg. Yes. I have never seen anyone approach an interview with someone with such a whispering tone. Refers to him as sir when trying to get his attention. Excuse me, Goldberg, sir. (laughs) Then when Goldberg does acknowledge him, Louis just kind of giggles like a child. It's worth saying that he's physically huge, like a massive man. I don't know about his history with steroids, but if anyone was potentially on steroids, it might have been Goldberg at this point. Please don't sue me if you're listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly, allegedly. I would like it if none of these absolutely massive wrestlers are listening. Goldberg does something very strange when he's speaking to Louis. He's polite and he's nice and he sort of says, oh yeah, I'll speak to you, no problem. And then sort of mid-sentence just turns his head away and spits on the floor, which is a bit horrible. But I feel like Louis might be a little bit of a fan, despite saying that he doesn't know anything about wrestling. He's really buttering him up. And he says, as I understand it, you're the top wrestler in the country. And Goldberg says, well, thank you. And Louis says, if I wanted to become a WCW wrestler, how could I go about that? And Goldberg has a bit of a laugh to himself and he says, you'd need to gain a lot of weight. They briefly discussed that if he wanted to train he would have to go to something called the power plant which is based down in Atlanta, Georgia. Is that where they say it is? That's right. Which is the kind of WCW's training facility for people they're bringing in to be new wrestlers. And then that's done. The conversation with Bill Goldberg clearly didn't go much further than that because that's the end. We cut to the next scene. Now that I'm thinking about it, actually, the very abrupt end to these interviews, we later learn how these wrestlers are trained to speak to the media. And actually the quick, sharp talking and then that's it seems to be how they're programmed to do it. So that maybe makes sense. They're not sticking around for a long conversation. No. 
But Louis does get a bit more time with the next person and eventually a lot more time. And this is a guy known only as Sarge, who looks like the most stereotypical US Army sergeant you could imagine. He is incredibly muscly, tight crew cut hair, slightly worryingly red, almost purple complexion. And he is talking to Louis because he is the trainer down at the power plant facility. So Louis is asking Sarge if he can assess if he has what it takes. And Sarge says, it's not all about muscles you've got to have brains you've got to know where the cameras are and then Louis speaking to him and says I'd love to come down to the power plant facility and Sarge agrees that this is something that they can do Sarge says Gordon Sullivan used to say that wrestling is a human game of chess and he agrees it's a thinking man's game you know those very 80s plastic games where there was like two boxers fighting each other and you would it's kind of like hungry hungry hippos or something I feel like that's what Sarge looks like one of those guys or he looks like the 1990s film Small Soldiers with the action figures that come to life he looks like one of the action figures from that he doesn't really look like a normal person he looks like a cartoon character come to life would you like to know sarge's real name yes please his real name is Dwayne bruce that's quite a good name since the closure of wcw spoiler alert wcw doesn't last forever he goes to work for a construction company in atlanta that's his job a building manager now and he's just doing that now just doing that probably being absolutely massive lifting buildings and constructing them left his hammer underneath the building just lifts it up The thing about these guys, and I think you see it in people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, fair enough, he wasn't a wrestler, but he was a bodybuilder, is that I think when they get older, their bodies just change so dramatically. And they're obviously still very strong and fit and all the rest, but... I feel like your body just can't contain that. No, I I mean, this is something that we can touch on a bit later, but the guys that do make it that long and do live for that long don't live in particularly good health. And the amount that don't is a really, really troubling thing that is a definite issue with this kind of era of wrestlers. It's just the saggy old man skin that Arnie's got now. Yeah, a bit like a leather couch. So it's nearly showtime for Louis's first professional wrestling event. We see the build-up, we see the crowds gathering, people have got signs, there are pyrotechnics, the ring's all set up, and it's WCW's weekly televised special, Monday Nitro. So I almost feel like wrestling was even more of an event then than it is now. Well, I think what you're seeing is that the TV audiences then can't be matched. They talk about the fact that they're packing out stadiums, but also Louis mentions that there are 5 million people watching at home, which is enormous, the amount of people watching a weekly wrestling show. So this really was a golden era for that sort of thing. And maybe now more people are keeping in touch over social media, but you will never ever see TV audiences like that again for a sporting event of this kind. The event starts and Louis says it becomes clear pretty quickly that it wasn't totally real you see a lot of dramatics at one point rowdy roddy piper helps an injured wrestler into an ambulance and it's actually bound for a mental hospital this is something that is featured in an article by whatculture.com in 10 disturbing wcw nitro moments you totally don't remember so apparently the week after the wrestler who is known as rick flair is sent off to a mental hospital they do a scene of him in the mental hospital with many stereotypical and borderline offensive caricatures of people in a mental facility oh dear the 90s the 90s yeah i've heard of rick flair as well i'm just gonna keep doing this now where i'll be like i've heard of that person you're actually a secret wrestling buff you know it all it's just in my blood i guess 
Louis said, although there's a lot of melodrama, the athletic prowess of the wrestlers is undeniable. They are properly throwing each other about. They're obviously very strong. Their stamina's very long-lasting. And Louis says at the end of it, he's most intrigued by how the fights are choreographed and how the story is decided. And then Louis makes a bit of a mistake, I think. Yeah, this is the mistake that will haunt him for the rest of the documentary. After the show, they're kind of packing up the ring and putting everything away, ready to go to the next city or state that they go to. And Louis catches a few minutes with Sarge. Louis says, how much of what goes on in the ring is decided beforehand? Do you know what I mean? And Sarge says, no, I don't. And then he says, I'm busy. He quickly moves on and says, you need to speak to Al Sharp about this. I have things to do. This is something that massively shows the difference between some people in the wrestling industry at this time who didn't want to reveal that this was predetermined. And then, as we see with the next group of people, some who are totally fine to say, yeah, it's predetermined, it's all a soap opera, but it's enjoyable. I assumed that by this point people knew how staged it was, and this was general public knowledge, but I found an article from the Associated Press back in 1998. The starting line is, could it be professional wrestling is staged? That's the shocking accusation a promoter has made in a lawsuit filed against champion wrestler Rick the Nature Boy Flair. Essentially, it's still kind of teetered on, is this a revealed thing that wrestling is staged? And it can still make news that potentially it is. So maybe this is why Asajj is really sensitive to speak to someone on camera about this. When you were a kid, were you aware on some level that it was scripted? Yeah and no. I'm trying to put myself back in that place of being like a child watching it. And I think you knew that there was some part of it, but I don't know you knew that it was all completely decided. Again, I don't want to compare it to reality TV, but it turns out that this is the only thing I have that's similar in that when I used to watch The Hills, which was one of the first reality TV shows, they would have that disclaimer at the start that some scenes were filmed for entertainment purposes. But I still like to pretend to myself that it was all real. Well, exactly. And wrestling is reality TV. It really, really is. They talk about it as a soap opera and it is that because they blur the lines between what is real and what is not. But at this point, they were very protective about saying this is not real. So, as you said, Louis goes to speak to some other wrestlers who are more willing to talk openly about how they plan their fights. So he goes to North Carolina for this to meet with the AIWF, who are the American Independent Wrestling Federation. They describe themselves as the most extreme wrestling federation in America. They also have a TV show. It looks slightly lower budget than WCW. It kind of looks like a YouTube setup, actually, which is obviously well before its time, but two guys just chatting about wrestling and then some kind of home movie style videos. We meet with the founder first, the owner of the company, which is a guy called Dean Puckett. Louis says he's willing to talk on camera about how his fights are set up. How would you describe Dean's look? Well, I want to know if he was willing to talk openly about how he grew his mullet so well. Such an incredible curly mullet. The ringlets on that thing are very impressive. I also kept having to remind myself that it wasn't Adam Sandler for the entire time. Because it really looks like young Adam Sandler. And has some sort of Adam Sandler energy. There is a kind of cheeky glint in his eye. And he has a very sunny disposition. Yeah, he's cheery. He's otherwise pretty normal t-shirt and jeans, plaid shirt kind of man. Louis goes to Dean's house to meet him. Dean says that he is promoter and owner of the Federation, but he's also a wrestler. Although I don't think we get to see Dean wrestling, which is quite disappointing. Dean first takes Louis to see his van, which is full of what looks to me just like boxes of crisps and barbed wire. But he says they keep everything in the van, 
from speakers to concession stand, which is the crisps, and photos. So lives out of the van. He's talking about how they're a touring show. And Louis says, yeah, like a rock band. Or, and then there's a small pause and he says, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> it's a weird comparison. Jinkies. That's all I have to say to that. Dean doesn't skip a beat when Louis says that they're like Scooby-Doo. He just agrees that they're like a really violent rock band. Their first trip out together is a live radio promo for the next big show that the Wrestling Federation are doing. So they go down to the radio station and it's explained to Louis that Dean actually goes by the name Rick Diesel when he's wrestling. And that's what fans know him as. The station, by the way, is 1300 WSYD. The DJ is called Debbie Cochran. She's got big Dorothy from Wizard of Oz vibes, the gingham dress and red hair that crossed with dolly parton though i would say yeah she's quite southern isn't she yeah the weirdest thing i mean i loved this but it was so weird that basically louis gets involved in the interview which is meant to be rick diesel selling the big fight and then debbie's obviously just really interested about louis and then they end up interviewing louis about the documentary that he's making while he's making it on the radio it's so meta because we're now talking about the interview within the documentary. Which was about the documentary. He totally upstages Rick because he's got a nice English accent and he's not there to promote a local wrestling show. One of the best bits is Debbie is asking him about what he does and says, do you only do investigations on the bizarre and the strange? And Louis leans into the mic, looks at Rick and says, basically, I like to meet weirdos. And everyone bursts out laughing. Dean kind of pretends to get offended, but I feel like he's in the Rick Diesel frame of mind at this point. And then Debbie says that she's seen Rick or Dean perform before and he's quite the showman then Dean jumps in and says well actually since you've been the show's changed a lot we now use fire barbed wire thumbtacks and glass doors which Debbie's quite taken aback by and Louis says that sounds dangerous but Louis seeming to want to make up for the fact that he's totally stole this interview says it's so extreme that people will have blood coursing down their faces and their hair will be on fire and they'll be running around the ring (laughs) which sounds terrible to me sounds really stressful i love that dean then says actually there was one time someone set their hair on fire (laughs) but then when debbie's asked so will you be coming along she says she's gonna have to check her schedule she's not sure she's quite busy she does say that the interview has been the highlight of her radio career so far there you go but does it get better when she gets the promo of her dreams for her radio show louis does two little voiceovers for the station hello this is prince charles from britain I always listen to Debbie Cochran on 1300 WSYD. And then he ad-libs one from Elton John as well. He's clearly enjoying himself a lot here. And then Debbie and Louis share a small moment where they kiss each other on the cheek and have a cuddle. They're really into each other. It's so bizarre. Would you like to know a bit more about Deborah Cochran, the presenter of the show? Yes, please. So she is now a business teacher at a school in the local area, but she was the mayor and city commissioner of a nearby town called Mount Airy in North Carolina, where this is set from 2007 to 2015. She's had a varied career. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it gets better. And then in 2020, so this year, she ran for lieutenant governor of North Carolina, but lost in the Republican primary. And judging from her Facebook campaign group, her last post or one of the last posts was, please pray for President Trump. So there's a career for you. Damn, Debbie. I had so much hope. (laughs) 
So after this, what ended up being very odd little sort of school trip for Louis. He and Dean head back to the Westfield School gym where the wrestling match is going to take place. And the next job is to build the ring. So these guys who are the wrestlers and the promoters and sell the crisps or whatever are also building the ring. And Louis meets a guy called Brian Danzig who's described as Dean's right-hand man. And he helps with the creative stuff, which it turns out is the storylines. So Dean and Brian are openly saying that they write storylines and there's a creative element to the show and they plan what's going to happen in each wrestling match. Louis asks the question are the matches predetermined and Brian who is a very friendly guy is the first person who just openly says yes. Dean while being asked this question is a little bit more squirmy doesn't feel as just as comfortable kind of saying that out loud Dean explains it's like a soap opera for men essentially. They admit that they know who's going to win in the end dean says it's entertainment but it's not fake so he's kind of stressing the fact that they are athletes they do have to be physically fit they take a lot of pain and then they bring up the barbed wire that we've already seen in the van they use barbed wire and also do some blading which is specified as using a razor blade to make a small cut on your face in order to make it look like you're bleeding from an injury which is quite extreme we kind of zoom in on Brian's forehead, who is a, as well as being the creative guy, is also a wrestler himself. And I've just described his forehead as demonic. There is barbed wire marks all over it, razor blade cuts in the corners. It's quite shocking. Yeah, he's getting onto like Charlie Manson vibes of having a, a swastika in the middle of his forehead at this stage. Again, for the lawyers, Brian does not have a swastika in the middle of his forehead. No swastika, no swastika. <laughs> I think we see this more later, but Brian seems calm, but then is covered in scars from barbed wire and from cutting himself on the forehead with a razor blade. So bit of a weird juxtaposition. But Louis agrees during this conversation that wrestling is athletic and that obviously these guys are athletes as well as just jabbing each other with barbed wire in the head. So they return to physical work and Louis is doing his classic role of helping out doing jobs. Everyone else is in like t-shirts and kind of workwear. Louis is in a leather jacket, a jumper and a shirt. I can't imagine trying to do some physical labour being that heavily dressed. But he always does his thing of making it sound like he's working really hard. Like he does a lot of... I mean, he would be a great wrestler. He's so good at hamming it up. Pretending he's in pain. He's holding some cables like, oh, these are so heavy. (laughs) God's sake, Louis. So actually, the other guys are doing the hard work in that they're building the ring. And as they're doing their physical labor, Louis doing his classic of chatting to people and asks Brian, so what's the ultimate plan here? Do you want to do this for a while, get better? Do you want to be part of the WCW? And Brian says he doesn't want to be part of WCW because he wouldn't have as much control over what he got to do. Wouldn't be allowed to stab himself in the face with barbed wire. This is interesting, though. This kind of brought me back to the infomercial people in the conversation we have with people like Dr. Wynn where it was like no I don't want to do anything but this because in this world I have total creative control about what I put out and I feel like these are the guys that like we talked about if YouTube had been around that's what they would have been doing they would have had YouTube channels no doubt and a podcast probably and a podcast where they have full creative control and they can talk about swastikas in people's heads interestingly as well Louis asks Brian what do you do do you have a day job 
And Brian says his day job is that he pairs socks all day. I guess it's a sort of quality control job by the sounds of it. He flips them over. Is that what he does and checks if they have holes? Yeah. And he listens to music and thinks about wrestling. And as Dean points out at this point, when you do something like that, you really want to let go on Saturday. But I think maybe this explains a bit about the psychology of Brian. Like he's not having a very fulfilling time for most of his life. He's maybe letting out some of his frustration in, you know, cutting himself on the forehead with a razor blade. Maybe it's good that Brian has found this thing that is an escape for him, that is something that he gets pleasure out of. It's clearly not work, so maybe running around covered in face paint, hitting people with barbed wire is the thing. This definitely shows as well that while there is the professional level that we saw at the beginning with WCW, this really is like a very blue collar pursuit. This is guys that have normal day jobs who are just doing this for fun. They have to build the ring themselves, they promote the show, they do everything and then they wrestle. Not that different from Demo Derby actually. No, not at all. So they finish building the ring and Louis starts jumping up and down on it and then says, is it okay if I do this? (laughs) Which is classic Louis. And Dean says, yeah, that's fine. There's a lot of bounce in the mat, I guess, which shows you that maybe even though it would hurt to land on your back, at least there's some give to it. And then there's a nice shot of Louis and Dean just bouncing up and down and laughing on the wrestling ring. But that bounce is really tested in the next bit, which is they have a guy called Steve, who they describe as the new guy, who's getting lessons on taking a bump which is to land on the surface, essentially, to learn to kind of fall, which is a crucial skill for professional wrestlers. So they show Steve throwing himself on his back again and again and again. And it looks sore. It looks painful. It looks awful. But then, even worse than that, Dean asks, when will he be ready for a four-point? And it turns out that a four-point is four men holding you by your limbs and then dropping you on your back quite hard but steve takes it all in his stride and gets up he looks very winded but says oh that's okay i'm okay and then when it's suggested that maybe louis should try one of these louis says actually i'd rather just run back and forth across the ring and bounce off the ropes if that's okay which he does for an obscenely long time It also fully shows off his tragic outfit, which is black turtleneck, long, then slightly flared jeans, almost boot cut. I'd say boot cut. And then really awful trainers. Like hiking trainers, I would say. Really sensible, like your mum would really want you to wear them. And Louis is (laughs) strutting across the ring, throwing himself across the ropes, while the other guys, Rick and the rest of the team, just look on like his dad's just enjoying him having a nice time. I really wish that they'd tried doing a four-point on him instead. (laughs) Well, Louis gets his comeuppance at some point in terms of the physical activity. That's true. So his next stop after he leaves the gym, tiring himself out running across the ropes, is to Express Lube. Yep. That is the name of a garage in North Carolina where one of the promotion's star wrestlers works. That's his day job. He's a guy called Jody Rushbrook, who is the assistant manager at this garage. And again, it shows that this is a real pursuit by very blue-collar guys. At the weekends, Jody is known as Major Havoc. Jody is not super tall, I don't think. I think he's quite a sort of short guy, but he's built, obviously, and he is bald, although he wears a baseball cap at work, and he's got a nice goatee, some really sort of late 90s facial hair. Love that. And Louis asking him about how he gets into character, because obviously Jody that works in Express Lube compared to Major Havoc, there must be quite a change there and Jody says yeah he pumps himself up and he has all these growls that he's doing to get into character and then it just cuts to all of his colleagues who are also working with him just 
pissing themselves laughing in the background, which I love. But he's not afraid to show off his wrestling persona at work, as he proves with his signature mad laugh. Well, first we get the tongue. He kind of bunches up his shoulders to make himself look bigger and then sticks his tongue out, which then Louis does back at him. (laughs) And then he says, I have this signature laugh. Can you do Jody's laugh? I don't think I can do it. Can you? (laughs) 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 It's loud, isn't it? And then the garage, because it's like very echoey, it just kind of stays. It's piercing. Sinister as well. Having that much confidence to do that at work, though, I fully respect that. Again, this is the thing. I think I talked about this in the Demolition Derby episode, which is guys that just seem very comfortable with who they are. And Jody definitely screams that. And the next scene definitely shows that Jody is just up for really doing anything. So Louis asks for a taste of the wrestling life. And then there is a quick cut to what I assume to be down below the basement of the garage where Louis is being hit in the back with a metal shelf by Jody. And then when Louis complains, Jody starts hitting himself in the head harder to prove that he wasn't actually hitting Louis that hard. Louis says it really hurts and Jody says yeah it does hurt but you know your own limits. And then Jody very philosophically says as times get more violent wrestling gets more violent. It's true though isn't it? People just want more. Yeah it's interesting especially with wrestling how it's gone. This kind of era of wrestling was incredibly heavy on things like blood and violence and then as they sought more mainstream appeal after this they really tone that stuff back you will not see blood in wrestling half as much as you used to anymore because i think they did try and attract that younger fan base that they kind of lost by pushing it too far but jody is very much in that era and as he says wrestling is incredibly violent at this point because that's what the people want then there's maybe the most self-conscious moment that jody has where louis says so do you just come down here and hit yourself with things <laughs> jody says no i don't do that But then he shows Louis that he uses the garage. I think where they are is maybe, you know, in a garage where they have to move cars up and down above each other. I think they're on the bottom level of that. So Jody uses the ironwork frame to do some pull-ups and he's obviously got a lot of upper body strength. My theory is Jody has never done this before in his life, but the crew has asked him, can you show us how you would maybe train down here? And so kind of improvises, putting a couple of stools together and doing some kind of lifts of himself and then lifts himself up on the stairway. It's all really thrown together. Yeah, I'm sure when you're the assistant manager of a busy garage, you've got time to go downstairs and do some chin-ups. I feel like you may get some complaints from your employees. Louis tries to do, I think, one pull-up and whinges a lot and then kind of fails to do it. We're working up to Louis having to do some physical exercise. And Louis asks Jody the same question that he asked Brian earlier. Where do you see yourself going with this? What's the plan with wrestling? And Jody says he would like to go to WCW. So he's got aspirations to become big. Louis says, I'm interested in the theory behind becoming a wrestler, but I don't think I'm necessarily built to take it. And Jody says that Louis should come and take a few slams with him and he would be honoured to slam Louis. He obviously thinks Louis could take a pounding. Jody has a job and he has a family and this is very much a commitment outside of those two things. And Louis says that doesn't leave a lot of me time. Jody says, yeah, he doesn't have much time for himself, but this is how he's happy and this is something he wants to do. Which is really interesting because obviously what we saw with the WCW is guys who are paid to do this and are financially secure, but this is very much something Jody does because he wants to do it. This is something he finds real pleasure in. 
Jody says that he works 16 hour days at his job and then goes home to his wife and kids and then goes out and does wrestling at the weekends. Be very tired. But it's okay. He's cheerful. He does one last farewell, terrifying cackle. <laughs> and then Louis leaves him for now. Would you like to know whether Jody ever made it to WCW? I'm going to guess not, but I want to be surprised. Um, so no, Jody does not make it to WCW, but Jody does become the owner of Jody's Auto Repair and Lube Shop in 2016. Stayed in the lube business. I wonder if he's still wrestling. Judging by his Facebook profile, I think he is, but he's doing very well with his own business. Well done, Jody. Proud of you, hun. In the narration, Louis says he likes the wrestlers, but he's wondering how he's going to react to the impending bloodbath in the upcoming show. We go to the AIWF show at the high school where Dean is giving the wrestlers a pep talk. He says to the guys, they've got a popping crowd out there. There's a lot of people waiting. And Jody's there. He's obviously one of the wrestlers that's going to be wrestling tonight. His outfit inspired my own today. He seems to be wearing cycling shorts and knee pads. And that's the extent of the outfit, really. And then they say, what's the key word that will get everyone ready? What should they have in their mind? And the key word is insane crazy. It's technically two words. Don't. They're very happy with that and let's leave them to it. Louis kind of points out some guys that are in the changing room or the green room and asks Dean about them. One of them has a plastic sword and a shield. Another one has a toy horse. And Dean says, oh yeah, that's a, that's Weirdo Incorporated and says that they're someone's entourage. I think they're his entourage. This is what shows that this is very much the DIY level because that sword and shield and then he has a kind of knight's outfit on, but it is something you would find in a like children's section of a supermarket. It's not a very cohesive theme. It's what people could find and put together on a shoestring budget which is really fun. Louis briefly speaks to Jody and he asks him do you know how the match is going to go? Do you know if you're going to win tonight? And Jody says I'm going to win big. So again they're acknowledging the fact that it's predetermined. Louis seems to very much enjoy this because then he says oh that's in the script and then does a kind of scripty hand gesture and is clearly very happy to be talking about this away from Sarge's ears. It turns out that Jody has a wrestling partner who's called Robbie Evil and they're dressed to look the same. Louis speaks to them and then he speaks to a couple of other guys about the barbed wire and about the blood that has been promised and he gets a mixed response. So one of them is very excited about the idea and the other guy says, well, I've been left with permanent scars from it. I'm not a fan. So there's a kind of a lot of happy energy in that dressing room, I would say. Everyone's quite buzzed to be on this show and then we cut to a corner where brian is sat in his choker his 90s goth girl choker has full face paint on a vicar's collar as well a dog collar and he is sat there with headphones on listening to a walkman and he's just getting himself obviously in the zone very solemn i'd say that his makeup is almost like kiss style and that it's black and white but it's a bit more gothy than that i like to think he was listening to something like nelly Furtado or something that was just really off brand just some s club seven or something louis clocks that brian looks like he's about to go out to a goth night at i want to make a really local reference that nobody will understand so i won't but do it 
<laughs> he looks like he's about to go to the mission in Edinburgh, doesn't he? There we go. If you understand that reference, then that one was for you. So Louis clocks this and says, you know, there are a lot of kids out there. I'm getting intense vibes from you here. Just wondering, is your act a little bit too grown up or a bit too violent for kids? Brian says, first of all, he doesn't think of wrestling as family entertainment. He's on last. If they want to take the kids home, then they should before he comes on. He's really, really into the whole blood element of it. So Brian, like you said, says, I don't look at this as family entertainment before picking up his chair covered in barbed wire and entering a school gym where there are lots of families and tons of children. Brian's storyline in this fight. I love Brian's storyline, by the way. Which he's written for himself, I guess, because he's the creative. It's classic. It's great. So three martial arts fighters who aren't wrestlers have come in to fight Brian and two other wrestlers in the ring. And Louis says it starts innocently enough and you see them going through the motions of fighting and one of them ends up on the mat. All the stuff that they were practicing with Steve, the new guy. And then the barbed wire chair comes into it and there's suddenly a lot of blood everywhere. And then the camera focuses on all the kids that are in the audience. Like the audience are reacting to this in, I'd say, a good way. They're getting quite riled up there is no one who looks horrified or scarred there is lots of people baying for blood literally small children and teenagers in questionable 90s fashion cheering as brian and these kung fu people from the local school of hard knocks continue to beat each other up and cut each other apart essentially louis looks horrified i'd say that louis is the only moral judger in that audience he watches horrified as brian and one of the other guys take it in turns to hit each other over the head with metal trays while there's just blood spattering everywhere and by the end of the fight brian's face is completely covered in blood the makeup's gone it's just red if you saw him you'd be alarmed and there's also blood splatter all over the ring and all over the floor around the ring as well so louis is clearly concerned and then heads backstage to check on brian because he's worried that maybe something went wrong in that that there was maybe too much blood and brian is absolutely pumped his eyes are like huge and he's laughing away the idea of being hurt and is clearly on some sort of euphoric high after performing louis says that his review is it went from being cool and fun to disgusting and brian sort of says fair enough it's not for everyone but he admits to louis that he made himself bleed with a razor blade which is something that they discussed before and louis is obviously quite shaken by that his response is to say fuck shit as brian's showing him he kind of drops his professional facade for that brian says you know other wrestlers are say to me brian why do you go out there and nearly kill yourself and he says but it's fine. I'm fine. I'm going to get cleaned up and I'm going to go and help put the ring down and then go to the Waffle House. Brian is very adamant that he knows what he's doing here and he knows his physical limits. And the blading is kind of a way to create the illusion of terrible injuries, but it's actually quite controlled. Louis later compares it to cutting yourself shaving as he tries to justify this to himself. But Brian is very kind of high off the occasion, but seems almost disorientated. Louis asking him what he'll have at the Waffle House and he says he'll have the same as he always has but can't remember exactly what his order is. Blood loss will do that to you. Yeah it will. So he's clearly either euphoric or slightly delusional after the event. Louis also speaks to Chris who's one of the martial arts fighters who is involved in the ring with Brian. Chris also juiced himself which is how they talk about using the razor blade and it was his first fight but he'd practiced a lot. So he practiced cutting himself in the head a lot. Chris looks incredibly pale to me. Like maybe he's just too much. 
Interesting that using steroids is also referred to as juicing. Well, that's it. I did wonder whether someone was going to make that connection at this point. But again, steroids does not get a mention from what we can see from these guys and their physiques compared to what we saw earlier. Doesn't strike me as a very big steroid zone. Lots of strong people, but none seem excessively huge. Dean comes down to see how Louis got on and Louis tells him that he had fun, but he was a bit shocked. And then Dean proceeds to tell him about the next show, which is basically a case of, well, if you thought that was shocking, the next show they're putting on is called Extreme Content, where guys see how violent they can get. Which will require people to wear barbed wire on their arms, apparently. Dean really defends the bloody element to it. Louis refers to it as strange, but Dean sort of seems... I guess he's just agreeing that it's what people want. They're at this stage where people just want more and more violence and that's what he wants to give to them. And if the wrestlers are happy to do it. Louis says he's going and Dean says, you fit in well here and says that they will miss him essentially. But interestingly, AIWF is still going today. I found their Facebook page where they kind of promote their events. They have 4,000 likes since they were founded in 1992. And their last event was in August, which was called Deal with the Steel, colon, straight out of quarantine. (laughs) That sounds good. So business is clearly still booming for those guys. So as we mentioned... Rick Diesel is straight out of quarantine and straight back into the wrestling business. And in order to find out how things were going for him, we tracked him down to his home in North Carolina on a very patchy Zoom signal to talk about his experience in the wrestling industry, which is now reaching 29 years and why Rick is not retiring anytime soon. My name is Rick Diesel. I am an American professional wrestling performer slash promoter. I started the AIWF in 1992 and have kept it going in one way or another for nearly 30 years. I like to tell people I got into wrestling because I was at home one day. A friend of mine back in uh, 1987 stopped by my house and he was going to start training at a wrestling school and he wanted to know if I would like to ride with him so I said yeah sure I got nothing else to do today (laughs) so I rode with him over to start his training and while we were there the guy that was doing the training talked me into doing it also were you a fan beforehand was it something you had an interest in When I was a kid, I used to watch it with my grandfather. So I always had an interest, but never an interest in being a performer, just mostly a fan. Then after I started training over there, I just sort of developed a passion for that side of the business. So this documentary, we find you in 1999. You're setting up a show at a local school gym. You're promoting it with a radio spot on a local radio station. And you're also running your own, what looks like a public access TV show. How different is that to where you are now and how you do things now? The difference in one word, internet. Back then, there was no internet. I mean, you had to go out and do the little TV spots and you had to go do the radio station, which that girl, Deborah Cocker, that was on that, ended up becoming the mayor of the town that we (laughs) lived in. I saw that. That's crazy. But uh, back then, it was all about the promoting. I mean, you know, you had to get out and put out posters and hand out flyers and talk to people and shake hands and do radio spots and TV spots. Whereas now, you'd be amazed how many wrestling companies, all they do is just post stuff on Facebook. I knew the internet was going to be a big thing for wrestling the very day I discovered that you could upload video to it. 
we have our episodes that we put up on the AIWF Mid-Atlantic Facebook page. And that's about all we do as far as any kind of TV stuff. Because I'm not going to lie to you, a lot of the younger wrestlers nowadays, they're more interested in filming their match and promoting themselves than they are promoting the company they work for. Do we see you performing in a local gym? Is that the kind of area you're still in or do you do bigger shows now? We do fairgrounds and that's basically our show we run once a month. And then occasionally we go to some other smaller venues. We don't do anything huge, but we still draw good crowds. So almost 29 years later, it's all how you present it to the fans. You have to keep them interested. We have no desire to get any bigger than what we are. As I get older and I guess more involved with my regular businesses and stuff that I run, you know, I don't have as much time to get in there and edit video and do all that stuff like I used to. And a lot of the younger wrestlers are not falling into take my place and to take us older guys, the promoter's place. Because like I said, they're so busy promoting themselves, they can't take time to promote a company. In the documentary, you give Louis Theroux a lot of behind-the-scenes information about how you run the creative for the show. And also, the big reveal is that you will talk to him on camera about the matches being predetermined. Did you get any pushback from others in the wrestling community for talking to the BBC so openly about these things? Believe it or not, I did not. Not as much as I was expecting, but Keep in mind, we only beat Vince McMahon by just a short period of time exposing. You know, it wasn't long after that that he dropped a bomb on everybody. And when you saw him say that, what did you think? Were you surprised? No, I I wasn't really. Because those of us on the inside of the business had seen it coming for a while. People inside the business were talking more to family and friends. The mystery of the business was slowly going away. We all seen, you know, the writing on the wall, so to speak, that we was not going to be our secret society much longer. Do you miss that at all? Every day. (laughs) Every day I'm in this business, I miss the way it was 25 years ago. Back then, a wrestler was literally a superhero or even on our level, the mystery of it was a big thing, especially to us. Because, you know, back then, a fan sees you at the mall or a grocery store, they want to come up and talk to you. Now they just look at you like you're, you know, just somebody else. But not just that, but the business meant more when that era of mystery was surrounded. The guys had more pride back then. They had more pride in their work and their craft. Where nowadays they're more interested in how their outfits look than how their in-ring performance looks. And back then you had to make it look real. Now They don't care anymore. They don't care if it looks real. They want to know how many backflips they can do. They don't care if their punches look good or if their kicks are believable or if their storyline is believable or if their facial expressions are believable. Now guys get in and have a match and laugh halfway through it because they're just out there playing. Back then we took it serious. I don't want to sound bitter, but in a way I am. I still love performing and I love putting on the shows for the fans, but I do miss it a lot. We kind of see how hardcore your shows are in those days. Is this something you still aspire to be? No. I mean, we still have aspects of that in our shows here in our area. And a lot of places do. But back then, keep in mind, when we were hitting our stride back in the mid-90s, ECW was starting to come up. 
And that was the new fad. And we noticed that when we did stuff that ECW did, the wrestling magazines paid more attention to us. And uh, there was, uh, I think, an, an edition of Inside Wrestling that did like a four-page article on how we were more extreme than ECW. Our guys took a lot of pride in that. Guys like Brian Danzig, Terminator X, Daniel Mays, Steve Niles. They took that to heart and it made them work that much harder to get that recognition. It was our niche, but as time went by, you know, we adapted. That's one thing that's helped the AIWF stay around for nearly 30 years is we have adapted to whatever the culture is at that moment. In the end of the documentary, we see you talking about Terminator X, who you've just mentioned, and he's been in a barbed wire match and he's seriously damaged his neck and cheek. And you say, for the first time, you've had doubts about whether you've gone too far. Were there ever other doubts? Well, that night, the match that Terminator X and Brian Dadzik had was in Stewart, Virginia. And what they had done is they had took barbed wire and made boxing gloves. And they had the whole match with their hands wrapped in barbed wire. And the way Terminator X got the neck injury was when Brian jumped off the top rope. When he landed on Terminator X, his hand slid across his throat and it started right under his ear and kind of went about halfway down his neck. And he was bleeding pretty bad. That was probably the biggest moment that brought the thoughts of dialing things back into my mind. It wasn't long after that that we started letting the guys themselves dictate more of what they were willing to do. You know, we would sit down and talk to them. The newer guys, we knew what Terminator X, Brian Danzig, Daniel Mays, Steve Niles, Don Carson, Sebastian Kane. We knew what those guys would do, but we started talking to the younger guys that were coming in a little bit more about what they were willing to do. And instead of trying to guide them into the more hardcore matches, we started letting them have a little more say-so in where they went. And I honestly, I believe it was the right move because it made the younger guys feel more comfortable. And once we started doing that, more wrestlers started to be willing to come into the company because at one time, a lot of wrestlers was terrified to wrestle for us. I'd get things like, I can't work for y'all because I've got to go to work on Monday at my regular job that pays my bills. <laughs> Last thing I need a broke leg. <laughs> it was a good thing. That match and what happened to him, it defined our future. Are the wrestlers that you're working with now still from the same kind of blue collar backgrounds that they were then? And what draws people into wrestling now? I think wrestling on this level is always going to attract the blue collar fan because a lot of people, once they get into a nice cushiony office job, wrestling as their weekend activity usually don't go over very well. And Jody now, he owns his own mechanics shop. He owns his own garage now. And I haven't talked to Brian in a while, but the last I heard he was working at a local hospital. But as far as what attracts people to this business, I think that never changes. It's the fact that they see these larger than life characters on TV and they imagine themselves in that position. I've never met a wrestler that at least one point in his life didn't want to walk out at WrestleMania, even though it's a thousand to one shot that you would ever get to do that. But that's all of them's dream, at least when they first get into it. So I feel like that most people are attracted to this business because they want to be what they see on TV, even if it's at some small level. Moving into 2020, I saw that one of your most recent shows was called Deal with the Steel Straight Out of Quarantine. How much has the pandemic affected what you do? And do you think that independent wrestling will survive this? 
the pandemic, it shut down the wrestling industry on an independent level for months because they just wasn't able to have the shows. And for a while, some of the groups who had their own buildings were, you know, they, they realized, Hey, once again, the internet came into play and Facebook and they could Facebook live matches in their rings in front of no crowd, but that didn't last long for most of them because they just can't afford to do it. But as restrictions started loosening up a little bit, we was able to start running shows. And the reason we called Deal with Steel, because we've been doing Deal with Steel since 1997. So a lot of times we'll give the shows, you know, a sub name. And that's where Straight Out of Quarantine came from was because it was our first show that we was allowed to do since quarantine started. But independent wrestling will survive this because... As long as Vince McMahon's running shows, there's always going to be somebody out there that wants to do that. And there's always a building to find. There's always fans. And there's always guys willing to sacrifice whatever to get in that ring. There's a lot of companies that'll take a hit simply because they financially can't survive. But as long as there's wrestling on TV, independent wrestling will survive. I've always said that wrestling's like worse than any drug you can do because you have to get your fix. And we get ours once a month. And when you don't wrestle, you these guys do get itchy for it. When you retire, Rick, whenever that may be, what do you want your kind of legacy to be? I want people to remember me as the survivor on the independent circuit. Uh, I want people to look at me and say, you know, he never made it to the big time, but he done it all. You know, we've done a lot of firsts. We had the first all-cage match show. We did the thing with Louie. I just want people to remember me for the accomplishments that this company made. My fellow podcaster will want to know, do you still have the mullet haircut? (laughs) No. The grayer it got, the worse it looked long. (laughs) (laughs) I did have to cut it, mainly because of when I started my regular businesses. I had to look more professional. Not a lot of professional people want to deal with somebody with hair hanging down their back. Cutting the mullet did one bad thing for me. A company... I can't remember the name of them, but they uh, produced the Pawn Stars show. Actually contacted me about doing a reality show on Rick Diesel, you know, the life of Rick Diesel. And they interviewed me and my wife and kids and the executive producer. The one thing that turned him away from doing it was the fact that I didn't have the mullet anymore. (laughs) He didn't like me without the mullet. When he leaves, Louis says he's feeling slightly worried about the wrestlers so he's obviously gotten quite attached to them on a personal level and then (laughs) from his sort of pals in the wrestling scene louis goes to the wcw power plant school where he's going to meet up with sarge again by the time he gets there training is already underway and for some reason it sticks out in my head that in louis autobiography he talks about this episode and says that actually he made the crew late to the training school because he insisted on eating a full cooked breakfast at the airport before before they arrived oh my god which comes back to haunt him literally yeah literally oh my god that makes this scene worse he argues that the tension is real partly because they were late and this was deemed as offensive by the wrestling school The session is going on and there's people that are all shouting together. It's an incredibly macho environment. There is a sign on the wall that reads, Pain is temporary, pride is forever. 
Louis starts speaking to a guy who introduced himself as Pistol Pears Watley, who is one of the trainers at Power Plant, who is an older African-American guy, clearly very big person, big personality. And he asks him what the chanting is about, and he says it's about morals. I think he means morale. And he says it's to keep the zap up. Then Louis makes the mistake of joking that his name is Pistol Louis Theroux. And you can kind of see the annoyance flash over Pistol Pez's face. And he says, well, you know why they call me Pistol, don't you? He grabs Louis's hand as though to shake it and then does some kind of thing where he's obviously hurting him quite a bit. And Louis immediately shouts, ow, don't do that. He almost like dislocates his thumb. It's horrible. That's the reason they call me a Pistol, because I can break you up. Almost immediately, Pistol Pairs has him in a headlock and is clearly enjoying putting Louis in some discomfort. So this is very different from the guys in the independent scene that we saw earlier who were letting Louis run the ropes for fun. (laughs) This is not the vibe here at all. Pistol says he won't hurt Louis and Louis says I'm very delicate and then immediately starts shouting saying you're hurting me you're hurting me when it doesn't actually look like he's doing anything to him so maybe he's just incredibly strong like squeezing him and then Louis removes himself from the headlock or is removed from the headlock and he chats to Pistol so he says I understand that people pay to come to the training school how much are people paying to come here so apparently people pay $250 for a trial which is three days and then if they're able to stand up to the training then they pay $3,000 to be trained as a wrestler. I was kind of interested in what do they earn afterwards? So there was an article by Fox Sports which was looking at papers which were revealed from a discrimination lawsuit which essentially revealed the salaries of WCW wrestlers between 1996 and 2000 so very much the area we're talking about. It's really interesting because obviously the money that you can make if you are at the very top of this industry, is absolutely huge. So in terms of people we already met, Bill Goldberg in 1999 earned $5 million. My God. And then Rowdy Roddy Piper, who is nearing the end of his career, a little bit older, he earned $718,000. Not bad. Not bad. And again, there's a lot of money to be earned, but how many people who were in that room or who attend that school will get the chance to earn that and how many people end up doing what the other guys are doing, which is working in a garage and going to promotional shows at local schools. It's a gamble. Definitely. Yeah. And Pistol Peds sort of says, oh, $3,000 is nothing, implying that they'll then make loads of money as wrestlers. But like you say, you might just end up $3,250 out of pocket and working at Express Lube. Exactly. They ease him in gently. Louis's first class that he sits in on in the wrestling school is a media interview technique lesson. Pistol gives Louis a wrestling name, which is Waldo. Is this because he kind of looks like Where's Wally or Where's Waldo in America? Absolutely. There is a point a little bit later in this where someone shouts Where's Waldo. (laughs) It's clearly that. So he's got his wrestling name and now he needs to learn how to sell himself to the camera. We watch two wrestlers who are training called Awesome Angry Allen and Hard Body Harrison. Pistol's kind of running them through what they need to remember when they're talking to the camera. The most important things they need to remember are the subject matter, the time of their fight, the date of their fight and who their opponent is. So these guys are going to do a sort of one minute or one and a half minute segment to camera where they talk about the current beef they've got and who they're going to be fighting and when you can watch it. 
Angry Awesome Alan steps up first. He's doing his promo and he goes all in from the first second. He is shouting about his opponent, where they're fighting, but the veins in his neck look like they could explode from about 30 seconds in. I can confirm that Angry Alan is very angry. (laughs) He lives up to his character name. He finishes about three or four seconds short of the timer. They're kind of keeping a clock on him. He's meant to do a minute. And Pez says, you blow your wad in that first 30 seconds. He tells him to slow down because if you do two minutes you are never going to do it at that pace good advice then Hardbody Harrison steps up to the plate less angry he's really sort of vamping he maybe says what he needs to say in the first four seconds and then he's trying to do what one and a half minutes where he's just going round and round in circles he really loses steam I think he only manages about 30 seconds in the end yeah it was kind of the opposite issue with Hardbody Harrison Pistol Pez shows him how it's done and does this quite impressive angry bit to camera. It's kind of the good bits of Angry Alan and then the good bits of Hardbody Harrison put together. He's so loud as well that by the end of it, the entire gym is just watching him. Back in the day, he was probably quite good at the media side of it. And he agrees with Louis that a lot of what they need to do is story. There's a lot of character building. And then it's Waldo's go. So Louis steps in front of the camera to deliver his promo, which I would describe as polite, succinct. But he gets all the message across. Waldo's the name. London, England's the place of origin. A new face on the block. I'm going to wrestle Pistol Pez Watley, the one and only, the legendary. Am I excited? Am I honoured? You better believe it. I'm going to throw every... Every move I every move I know, I'm, I've been practicing, I've been trying really hard. Pistol Pez Watley, the legend, with the utmost respect, I'm afraid to tell you that I think you are going down. It's a little bit repetitive. Pistol Pez is impressed. He says, you're already good with words and did an excellent job. So at this point, we're assuming Louis is star pupil number one and how quickly that will change as we come into the most famous scene of this episode, I think, which is the workout with Sarge. Louis says, as a token of respect, I've decided I'm going to push myself as hard as I can go. He's changed into a baggy t-shirt, some shorts and those very sensible trainers from earlier. He's in his PE kit. He is, but in the kind of, I've forgotten my PE kit, can I just get things from the lost items box? Instantly, we realise that Louis is not just going to be one of the guys who has to do the workout. Sarge drags him to the middle of the group. And so all the attention is then on Louis as they continue to throw themselves to the floor, get back up. Then they are doing press-ups on the floor, counting down from 10 and back. And at this point, it gets quite physical between Sarge and him. Sarge is standing over him and grabbing onto the back of his T-shirt and is clearly pushing him to the limit. Sarge is so sweaty as well. He's just like dripping all over Louis. He's almost purple as well. He looks very angry and worked up. And this just gets worse and worse for Louis as it goes on. It comes to a point where the wrestlers are gathered around Louis while he's meant to be catching up with the squats he obviously hasn't done when they were doing them. And all the wrestlers are there shouting at him to do this. And then they cut to a bit where Louis is lying on the floor. Sarge makes him describe himself as a dying cockroach. And Louis says, Sir, I'm a dying cockroach! And looks at almost the point where he could pass out. He's so pale. This is what I mean, is that a lot of people have apparently said to Louis Theroux, oh, that whole bit was fake, wasn't it? It was done for the cameras. But I think you can see on his face where he stops thinking, oh, they're having a joke with me. This is quite funny. He's like, oh, I feel really, really physically awful and they're not letting me stop doing this. 
Sarge says to him, you got the nerve to ask me that bullshit down at Nitro. So clearly still harboring that from when they spoke. And you assume that's probably going to be it, that he's been taught his lesson. But that's not the case. They throw him into the ring and he has to run on the spot and they're all shouting. And then we cut to Louis disappearing to go into the back. Then you see Sarge pacing after him, grabs him, pulls him out and throws him back into the arena and says, you have to sit here and watch if you're not going to be involved. Louis looks almost green at this point. He says, I'm going to throw up. And Sarge gives him a bucket and says, doesn't matter. And then Louis is saying, no, I can't do any more. I can't do any more. So Sarge turns that bucket upside down and essentially puts Louis in the naughty corner, has him face the wall, sit on the bucket and basically says, you stay here until you can join back in. How the mighty have fallen. Yeah, (laughs) This is not Louis running on the ropes for fun with his friends. Did it make you feel a little bit, I don't know, not panicked, but you know what I mean? There's a little bit of you that's like, oh no, he's lost control of the documentary now. No, totally. I can't imagine why people thought this was staged because it's this very uncomfortable watching. It's quite intense. I've put in my notes, what's to be gained from this? Does this change what we know about the results being predetermined? I think Sarge is trying to protect the business he works in and show how physical these guys are. But by doing this, does this mean that wrestling is real all of a sudden? The result is still a pre-decided thing. It's very defensive. It's a very defensive reaction from Sarge. So like you say, he's obviously shaken by what's going on at that point in the industry. So at that point you think, okay, maybe Lewis had enough. But it's not over. They go running outside in the car park and then Louis is retching. He's literally going to throw up. And they're all chanting Waldo at him. And then he does. He kind of retches on the floor and, and Sarge is even saying, is that all you can do? Yeah, even puking is not impressive enough. So Louis' voiceover says, I wasn't sure what I'd experienced. I was just glad it was over. He does try to claim back some of his dignity, though. As he leaves speaking to Pistol, Louis says it was very educational. And so then he's talking to Pistol Pez and asks him about why Sarge was so mad. And Pez explains it was about building a tone of respect. He wanted Louis to return to the UK and have a different viewpoint on what wrestlers go through. Maybe his execution was a bit off, but I suppose he was just trying to make sure that Louis knew the physical side of the industry that he was reporting on. Louis says that wrestlers are undervalued as athletes. Not that he ever said they weren't athletes, but he's obviously realised just how much physical prowess is needed. The power plant continues until WCW kind of collapses in the early 2000s. But there is a point in 2000 where a racial discrimination lawsuit is put against them with apparently claims that trainers at the facility, not anyone we see in this documentary, said that African-American trainees would have to put in twice the effort as Caucasian trainees to get ahead. Pistol Pez actually offers a deposition in this case, kind of confirming there was a definite racial element to how they picked who would succeed, essentially. So again, like we talked about, it's not not really about the muscles that you build or how many squats you can do or if you can run without retching as in many different walks of life it can be about the color of your skin as well and so we say goodbye to the power plant louis stops off to visit brian and dean before he heads back and he tells them about his experience at the power plant both of them are quite scornful of how he's been treated they say well that's normal behavior there they always treat their recruits like that obviously you know, painting themselves as the good guys in the wrestling world. 
But then Louis asks them what they've been up to and they said that their last show that they did was extreme. This must have been the big bloody showdown that they were telling Louis about before. The barbed wire death match, it has taken place. And apparently one of the wrestlers, Terminator X, needed stitches afterwards and was not in a good way. So Brian's response to this is, these things happen. Whereas Dean says he thought maybe they've gone too far this time. But he, because the wrestlers still wanted to fight even after they were, you know, in need of stitches, he decided decided it was okay. So this is obviously where the two differ in that Dean is starting to think this is going too far now and Brian is all for the bloodiness of it. But interestingly Dean goes from explaining he's had doubts for the first time to then showing off to Louis his extra sharp barbed wire that he's bought like he's showing off a picture of a newborn son. I've never seen someone so proud of barbed wire before. Louis says maybe you need to be a bit more careful if you're still going to use the barbed wire and have all of the blood and Dean sort of seems to agree with this but Brian gets very defensive when you compare Brian and Dean to Sarge you might say well these are the good guys because they're you know the underdogs and they're nice to Louie and they don't make him throw up but also they're putting their wrestlers in harm's way really so actually who's worse it's kind of two different evils really you can use the argument this is what the public wants and this is what will get people to shows but they only want it if they see it because you're doing it and the more you kind of push into that violent area the more chances are that people will get their faces cut open or something bad will happen these things are dangerous by nature did something very bad happen that they decided to stop the blood side of it or was it just a trend so in the big leagues so in wwe also known as wwf it wasn't really about something bad happening it was more about keeping their rating on telly so the more that they wanted to push for a mainstream audience the more they had to steer away from things like bad language and also blood was a massive part of that from what was known in the 90s as the attitude era which was kind of like pushing the edge and being provocative they moved into very much an era which was about being a family entertainment show but from what we can see the AIWF guys are still out there wrestling and so people still definitely want that it still exists out there somewhere before he goes, Louis pops into Express Lube to see Jodie one last time and we see them training together, again, obviously very staged for the camera, where they're just kind of doing well, like star jumps and stuff together, really, aren't they? And then hitting each other with things, including a dustpan. So that's that. And I now feel like I know a lot more about the world of wrestling. You're ready to go when we launch our wrestling production in the next few months. Awesome angry Alex. Ready to go. <laughs> and long body mat. So, what did you think? Did you think this was good Louis or bad Louis? I'm keen to know your thoughts as the wrestling noob first. What did you feel? I thought it was good Louis. It felt like a slightly weird episode of Weird Weekends. I think maybe because there weren't that many main characters. Although it was a full length episode, it almost felt like half an episode or something. But I thought it was good because I didn't know anything about this at all to begin with. So I liked that you saw the different sides to it. And I kind of like that thing where there's no defined good guy or bad guy. Kind of nice to know that it's still going on as well. Not just the pro pro guys, but the smaller town blue collar guys are still doing it. Personally, I'm a lover, not a fighter, Matt. Yeah, you state that every episode. I've never really got boxing or wrestling or MMA or any of that stuff really I don't personally understand it as a hobby or interest but I can appreciate how much like physical prowess you need to do it and I think it's good that they properly showed that as well in this episode 
the way that the wrestling audience likes to see the wrestlers bleed, I kind of got the thrill out of seeing Louis throw up. You monster. I think it's the same thing. I think it tapped into it where it's like, well, this is just like pushing him to his limit and to get to see that is quite rare. So I think in some ways it mirrored the wrestling. Baying for puke. Yeah. What about you? I think in some ways, if you are someone who has some knowledge or, or feels a bit connected to this subject because you've watched a lot of wrestling or you, you're into it, they felt like there was really obvious gaps. The conversation about steroids feels like it's so relevant. In the kind of early 90s in the WWF, which is the rival promotion to WCW, there was a huge court case involving the main guy, Vince McMahon, who was charged with a kind of criminal conspiracy for bringing in steroids to give to people who were fighting on his promotion. He was acquitted of all charges after the testimonies fell apart and stuff. But that was a massive issue in the industry at the time. And to just completely skirt or not even go near that felt like a real gap the thing that makes me think this is a very intentional choice was they never talk about the wwf which is the rival promotion and to not talk about the wwf when you're doing a documentary about pro wrestling is kind of like doing a documentary about fast food and never talking about mcdonald's i think what you're saying is that louis needs to do a follow-up get back in there get in the ring get in the ring i didn't see him take one body slam oh let's see him do the same training thing now well now he's ripped he's in really good shape he's been doing his joe wicks workouts so i feel like he's prepared yeah he's 20 years older though (laughs) (laughs) also one thing that just popped into my head there which we've definitely pointed out in the past about these early weird weekends episodes is no women absolutely and there were women wrestlers they should get some sort of say was there even a single woman interviewed in the oh the radio dj she's the only woman in it debbie cochran who he then outrageously flirted with (laughs) god's sake louis um you never said if it was bad or good i'm gonna say to keep up the standards this is bad through is that the first time you said that um we should really be keeping a running tally of this that's for the fans out there to do can someone get nerdy enough that they do that (laughs) (laughs) and with that i'm gonna body slam series two of all the way through onto the mat because we've reached the end you've really known nothing about wrestling during this time have you well actually i was gonna say i'm gonna four point drop it and then i realized it's only one of me so there's no way i could lift it by myself oh yeah so the series has been slammed down to the mat we've covered it one two three and it's over but we will be back on to the third and final series of weird weekends and then after that just carry on for 60 odd episodes plain sailing all the way into the future thank you to everybody for listening i know we always say that but we do always mean it and it's a bit surreal to know that you might be in sweden right now listening to this or in nashville listening to us which is extremely bizarre but very cool and thank you very much yeah i agree with that sentiment it is incredible so thank you very much and long may it continue yeah and thanks to big man louis through because we couldn't do it without him as much as we make fun of him all the time <laughs> yeah thanks louis thanks for giving us so much material to completely incinerate you Thanks very much for listening. If you would like to find out a bit more and keep in touch with our upcoming episodes, please do check us out on Twitter and Instagram at allthroughpod. Angels on your bodies.